So this morning, as we finish out the epistle of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, we're going to uh, we're going to look at all 14 verses, and we'll try to get through all of them in a timely manner. But uh, as as I was studying, preparing for this sermon, I I was I was really having some difficulty trying to figure out the flow of Peter's thought in First Peter, and and so uh, I thought of an illustration for you, and I think this is kind of how it is for Peter. He um, Peter is in a sense uh, closing his letter, his final instruction to churches in Asia Minor. A number of churches, and he does it, I think, the same way that, that we do it or your parents did to you whenever they would go out, out for date night, out of town, something like that, and uh, a few things always happen in that scenario. I know a few things happen in my household, at least. So number one is that there's got to be some, uh, there's going to be some instruction of uh, a uh, a change in responsibility. We're not here, and while we're away, somebody else is in charge. That's the first thing. And uh, if you grew up with a number of siblings like myself, and that was might be the old older brother, oldest brother, like I had, I knew that everyone knew David's in charge while he's while my parents are away because he's uh, he, the, the oldest, the biggest. He's accountable for everybody. It's just how it worked. But maybe it wasn't even an older sibling for you. Maybe it was just a babysitter. That for you growing up, you knew that if somebody was going to watch you, they had delegated authority to where the uh, your parent or parents said, I'm not here, listen to this person. Do what they say. And that that is one of the aspects that Peter starts to give us here. Um, there's somebody who's designated as an arbitrator and a mediator in the absence of the authority. Not only that, uh, there's, there's another part to it that normally happens, which is the second part, and that is you have to know, um, the kids have to know what sort of attitude that they're supposed to have. So you could, you know, as a parent, you could spend all your time trying to list out all the things that they should and shouldn't do, which is exhaustive and exhausting. Uh, you could say, don't hit your brother, don't throw this, don't break the window. Or you could actually try to get to the root of things and say, uh, you could try to address the attitude, and you could say, you should have this kind of attitude. You should be humble. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be selfish. You should be generous. You should try to share. And that's something else that normally happens when uh, the parents go out. Third and last, even though there's more, I'm sure, but the last thing that's similar for us in First Peter here is that um, not only is there a delegation of authority and a conversation about attitudes, but there's always the expectation that the parents or parent will come home. The kids know that. And uh, it, it really matters because on one, on one side, it's a hopeful thing. Like, oh, I want mommy or daddy to come home, hopefully. Uh, but even if it's not that, there's some fear attached to it, right? I know that if I act in a certain way, I will eventually have to face the authority. The authority is coming back home to deal with me. And, uh, and so that's the third sort of aspect of uh, the letter that Peter will give us. Or as Daniel the tiger says, grown-ups come back to you, grown-ups come back, they do. <laughs> if that's a part of your life right now. Um, so that's kind of what Peter's thinking and how he's getting 
uh, to the conversation in the letter. And just to review very quickly for you, First Peter, he starts the letter um, to the churches in Asia Minor. He's saying this is to a certain group of churches, and uh, it's not just one church, but it's instruction for all of them. In absence of Christ and in absence of his own leadership even, he writes to tell them a number of things. And as we've gone through First Peter, we've seen that he writes to tell them about their own salvation, their own individual, personal salvation, that they were foreknown in God's mind, loved and cared for, and so he saved them. But not only that, that this loving and saving attitude has it, it's related tied to something else in God's mind, which is something he's planned from before the world was made. And so he'll talk about how, in chapter 2, how this, this plan in God's mind for you as an individual changes to become something that's not just for you, but is actually a piece of a larger puzzle. That you, as a believer in Jesus, are a part, you're actually a stone, he would say, of the building that God is building together. And it forms this new community of God. And then he talks about how this new community of God should operate. And uh, one of the first things that he says is this new community of God doesn't operate however they want, but they submit to governing authorities, even unjust ones, even evil ones. And that is the context to which Peter is writing with believers who are beginning to suffer persecution and certainly ridicule for the name of Christ, but he says, don't, don't buck up against them. Don't fight them. Submit to them. Serve them lovingly. And so then Peter changes to talk about the role of the husband and the wife in the home and what has to happen there to be godly. And then he'll talk about, for the Christians, individual and corporate, how you shouldn't dive into the old way of living that you used to as an unbeliever, but rather... You should be holy and suffer well so that when people see you suffer, they see somebody who suffers completely different than anyone else around them. And as he's talking about suffering, then now he moves in chapter 5 to talk about how we suffer as believers, as Christians within the church with one another. And that not to say necessarily that we suffer because we sin against each other, we do, but his, his goal here in chapter 5 is to provide instruction for how the church interacts with one another in the midst of suffering while Jesus is away. So instead of having a main point for you this morning, I'm just going to ask one question, and that one question is this. Should I have it on the screen? Come up here. How should church members... That's you, if you're a part of this local church and a believer. How should church members live with one another while Jesus is away? That's what Peter's getting at. And that's the whole idea of the parents going out on date night or vacation or whatever it is. That Peter has that in mind. How should the church members individually interact with one another while Jesus is away? And he'll say at least three things about it. It's convenient. It's always three things for a sermon. It's funny how that works. Um, but first, we'll see that we should know. So instead of saying they, the church, I'll just take it and own it as one of you and say we. So we should know first what elders are called to do and be. That's the first thing that Peter talks about. Second, we should seek an attitude of humility 
and sobriety. And third, we should set our mind on the hope of Christ's return. And we'll hit all those in sequence. So first, let's start off with what elders are called to do and be. We'll start reading in chapter 5, verse 1. So, so that's connected to suffering now, how you deal with it as a church. I exhort the elders among you. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here to work out Peter's initial thoughts in this chapter. I exhort the elders among you. Notice first that Peter, Peter's writing to the church on the whole, but addressing elders in particular. And uh, we're not going to do it this morning, but I encourage you, it's, it's a worthy exercise to figure out what does elders mean, you know, in the church. And um, the way that uh, most people take it in the New Testament is to say that shepherds, elders, and overseers are synonymous terms to mean people who Jesus has placed in leadership in the church. And so I, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you. Now, this is really important for you, even if you're not an elder. Why? Because Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. That is to say, this is a public common knowledge announcement. I want the entire church to know what elders are to be doing. And so if you think, well, I'm not an elder, I'm not that involved in the church, you have no excuse. Peter cuts you off and says he wants every single person in the church to know this about the elders. So he says, I exhort the elders. Second thing to know, he says, I exhort the elders. Now we'll get to what he's exhorting in a second, but Peter here is an apostle. He's not just any apostle, he's the apostle. This is the guy that Jesus said, I will build my church on you. This is incredible. Peter has the most authority out of anyone in the world in absence of Jesus. Jesus is number one disciple. Everyone looks to Peter. Everyone does what Peter says. But he comes here and says, I exhort the elders among you. Peter very easily could have said, I command the elders among you. And that would have been right. It would have been good. But he doesn't. Instead, he, he says exhort. Now, you probably didn't use the word exhort recently. I doubt that you went around saying that last week you exhorted some people at work. Um, but exhort is a, way of, uh, it's a way of not commanding, but enthusiastically, uh, even empathetically encouraging somebody to do something. Uh, if you have people guests over for dinner, then you would probably have the meal, and if one, one slice of that coconut meringue pie is left, what, what would you say? you say, no, you go ahead and take it, because you're being hospitable. You're encouraging, you're exhorting them, and if they say, no, really, you should have it, then what do you do? Well, now you have to really dig in, right, and say, like, no, you're the guest. Please have it. I really want you to just look at it. It's so tasty. I know. You'll have to try to do some convincing to try to get them to, to do it. And that's what Peter does here. I exhort the elders among you, not command. As a fellow elder. So now Peter, even though he doesn't throw his apostle card down, because he could do that. He does it at the beginning of the letter to ver- verify the authenticity of it. But instead of that, he says, he says, elder. And Peter will give three different ways that we know he is qualified to tell the elders to do things here. 
First, that he's an elder. Second, he's a witness. And third, he's a suffering. As an, a fellow elder and a witness, very easily, very easily, Peter could have said, no, I'm the apostle, do what I say. Yet again, we see this, this repetition. His attitude is, I'm with you. I work with you, coming alongside of him to tell them that he's a fellow elder, not only that, but a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter saw Jesus be crucified. He saw him go to trial. He, he witnessed all of it. Not only that, he's a participant in it to some degree. He denied Jesus. So he very much is a witness. So he's a witness, but he's also a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Peter, this is remarkable. Peter sees his role in the church, an elder, and his involvement historically as a witness on the same level with partaking future glory. And we'll get to the glory in a little bit, but in Peter's mind, he says that this life where we will one day live with Christ, reign on the earth, all evil will be gone, sin and sadness gone, righteousness dwells, that is so present for him, it's such a reality that he can say it objectively, like it's a historical fact. I'm a partaker of that. I already have it. So Peter is writing here from a position that seems a little odd, incredibly humble, but at the same time incredibly firm. And so he'll move on and he'll give us what the exhortation is. So here's all the ramp up for it. Peter talks about it. Here's what I exhort the elders to do among you. Shepherd Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, Peter is very familiar with shepherding. He wasn't a shepherd, as you may know. He was a fisherman. But in the culture, it's a very familiar thing to anybody living back then, especially Jews. But besides that, these words for Peter take on a, a very personal tone. And it's very personal to him because of what he experienced. And what he experienced is Jesus coming to him and telling him that he is to shepherd the church. He is to tend to the church. He is to feed the church. And he does that in John 21. As John recounts the gospel story, he'll talk about it this, this way, that Jesus is resurrected, comes to breakfast, invites the disciples to come. They come, they start eating, and everything is a little awkward because they go back to fishing, which means they kind of gave up on Jesus' mission. And then Jesus asks Peter a question. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know I love you. John 21, 15. And then Jesus says, well, feed my lambs. And he'll do it again. He does this three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He says, tend my sheep. And again, he says, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep. You see, for Peter, to be a shepherd is the last instruction that Jesus gave him on earth. It's a very personal thing. And Peter takes this and then sends it on to other elders that they are to shepherd. And he qualifies it, shepherd exercising oversight. 
And, and so the way that you can think about this, that most people throughout church history have thought about it, is really two ways. One is going to be teaching. That's going to be the feeding of the flock, teaching the Bible that happens like right now, this morning. But it also happens in other ways, talking one-on-one or in small groups. So there should be some teaching, feeding element. But not only that, there's, there's an oversight to it. That the shepherd for the sheep doesn't just feed the sheep and then let it go. He leads them all across the place. He protects them, watches out for animals and threats. If they go astray, he brings them back. There's a lot involved in shepherding, as we see. So Peter here, he is, he is saying that this is what elders are to do, is shepherd exercising oversight. They are to feed and teach, and they're also to govern and oversee. They're to make sure that everything is okay with the sheep, that they're growing, that they're staying healthy, that they're not in danger. There's a lot involved. And instead of, like the parent listing out all the do's and don'ts, Peter here will, will give a, a few qualifications for the, the elder. And he'll start to talk about it this way. He'll give three things that elders are not to do, shepherds are not to do, there's ways you don't shepherd, and then three ways to shepherd in the text. And I'll just take them, the nots and the twos, so that everything's a little bit uh, more sensible for you. First, he'll say the shepherds, the way that they act is not under compulsion. That is to say that, that elders in the church, as we hear what Peter's saying, that everyone should hear, elders in the church should not be under compulsion. So that means when they get the phone call that someone is dying or hurting or there's a need or something pops up, that they don't say, oh, I have to do this again today. My life. Is there anything else I can do? Elders don't think that way. Why? Because Jesus doesn't think that way. When we pray to Jesus, he doesn't say, oh, that guy again. They'll never learn. No, they're they're not under compulsion or motivated by some sort of greed. He says that you shouldn't shepherd for shameful gain. Elders have a remarkable position in the church of not only authority, but also notoriety. I mean, how many of you are listening to me right now? This is a little crazy. Like, I could say anything. You know, but they shouldn't do that for shameful gain. They shouldn't, they shouldn't try to get more attention for themselves or even money by getting some sort of clout. Not only that, he says that shepherds shouldn't, elders shouldn't shepherd by domineering. They shouldn't be proud. They shouldn't enjoy their position of power so much that they, they just love getting up in the morning and saying, I'm, I'm just going to tell someone what to do today. I love it. They're supposed to follow me. They're supposed to do it. This is not how elders are to think and act. Rather, as Peter says, they are to do it willingly, not under compulsion. That when they get up in the morning, they say, how can I serve other people? How can I relate to other people? How can I pray for them? That this is a, coming from a very secure place for the elder because they know that they're loved for and cared for and, can, and have concern. And... Not only that, but eagerly, that he says it should be done eagerly. Like, they get up and, they, and they, they want to do it. There's not hesitation involved. 
Not only that, and lastly, he says that they're to shepherd by being an example. And this is a, this is a great one that so many leadership gurus and principles point towards, but like nobody follows. That leaders are to lead by example. Being an example is also a way of, a way of saying to be humble. So when Peter says that they are to lead and be examples to the flock, he's saying they're supposed to be humble. And why? Why would they do all this? Peter provides some rationale. 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So why do elders elder? Why do shepherds shepherd, shepherd and oversee It's not just for the gratification, even though there's that that's supposed to be involved. It is because I have someone that will hold me accountable one day. And not just someone I'm afraid of, someone I love. And as an elder at this church, I can tell you, I look forward to the day when I will see Jesus and I look forward to him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That, to me, matters more than anything else in the world. Long for the chief shepherd to say, well done. And so we see here a couple things. One, that Jesus is the chief shepherd. There are shepherds in the church, small s, like the pastor, but there are also there's, there's the big shepherd of the church, the church local and the church global, the capital S. Jesus is the great shepherd. And even for elders in the local church, Jesus knows what the sheep needs. Every elder is a sheep when it comes to Jesus. And he knows what they need, and he knows how to care for them. Not only that, we also see that there's a crown involved. And some people take this, I don't really agree with them, to say it's a literal crown that you get one day when you get to heaven, like Jesus is waiting there crown that's like got LEDs on it, it's glowing or something. I don't, I don't really think that's the case. It may be the case. That'd be kind of cool. But uh, at the same time, the point is to say, really, what you should desire as an elder, what your elders should desire is to get that commendation from Jesus, to know him, to love him, and to receive beauty and greatness. That's what's going on with the crown and glory. It's a way of getting beauty and greatness. You see it, and we see it all sorts of different ways. We all want this. Whatever vice it is, it offers to us, in some regard, beauty and greatness. And Peter says elders should seek this from Jesus in the way that they shepherd. Jesus is the prize. And this is a little bit of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you remember hearing this, Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Same context of the letter, suffering for Jesus. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, it's okay. It's okay to seek the reward for that to be your motivation. You should do it. Elders should prize the chief shepherd and the return of his coming. So what does this mean for 
you. What does this mean for elders, all of this information? It means at least this, that elders in the church, as you think about them now, you should be able to see them in this way, that elders lead in the trenches with their people in the midst of suffering and are the prime examples of how to suffer well. That's what Peter calls elders to do. Another way that you could say it is that elders are to lead by example or they are to lead from the front. I don't know how many of you saw the movie First Night with Sean Connery and Richard Gere. A strange combination in any movie. But uh, it wasn't too notable. But the thing about the movie is that it's, um, it had a scene in it that just like ruined the movie for me right off the bat. And, and there's this uh, war that's going on and Sean Connery is the Arthur figure and he's sitting there and, uh, and then he sends all his troops out into battle. And when he does that, he sits behind all the troops as the uh, master strategist and he's telling people what to do and flank and everything. And I thought, no, I don't want to follow somebody like that. I want someone who's in the heat of the battle. You know, like the Patriot or Braveheart or any Mel Gibson movie. That there's, there's got to be someone who's in the heat of everything that knows what's going on, that, that feels it all and can relate. And that's, that's what Peter's talking about here, that elders are to be there on the front lines. They should know what suffering is, especially in Peter's context, more than anyone else. So that everyone in the church, when they figure think, how can I deal with this suffering I'm experiencing? They can look to the elders and they can say, I do it like that. That's how God wants me to do it. All right, let's move on. So not only does he show us, Peter show us, how we should deal while Jesus is away in the church with elders, how elders are called to be an act, but he also says that we should have a certain attitude about us. And he starts that attitude in verse 5. He'll say this, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So the elders are still around, younger and elders. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter here uses the word likewise. And if you're just reading it, you're like, well, maybe I didn't catch it. It doesn't make much sense. But by using likewise, he's saying, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So what's the motivation of younger people in the church submitting to elders? It's the same in Peter's mind, that you too will one day have the Lord Jesus return and have to give an account to him. That's what Peter's saying. And this kind of mentality brings about a certain attitude. And so Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Whether it's the elder or the youngest person in the church, Peter says, and everyone in between, the attitude should be humility. It should pervade your thinking. It should be the way that you respond. It should be everything about you. And I think Peter gives us a word picture here to help us understand it. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Now, in the ancient world, it was probably a little different, but real similar for us today in that if you go somewhere and you see somebody wearing faded glory and then see somebody next to them wearing a suit, I don't know what nice suits are. I don't have suits really. But if you put those two people next to one another, 
what are you going to do? You're going to be tempted to say, oh, I like that guy more because he doesn't get his clothes from Walmart. It looks like he's an executive. He must know what he's doing. He's handsome. Or she's pretty. But Peter instead calls us to have the way that we see each other and the way that we interact with one another as being clothed in humility. We shouldn't think about outward appearances, but we should, we should think about how people are on the inside. Being humble for Peter is paramount to godliness. It's the way it happens. Clothing is a status symbol in our culture, just like it was in Peter's. And so for us, our status symbol shouldn't be clothing. Or the car you have, or the house you live in, that's not it. That's not humility. It should be the way that we interact with one another. And we'll see a little bit more about humility in a second. And Peter also says that this, the person who is humble, that that's good because there's an almighty, omnipotent God who will set himself against the person who's proud. So if none of the kindness gets through to you, then hear Peter in saying that there is a mighty God who opposes the proud. And he keeps going in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore he keeps this mindset in view under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see, Peter, he knows what it means to be humbled, running out from Jesus, denying Jesus, and then Jesus restoring him and exalting him such that he is the key figure in the world for people to listen to when it comes to Jesus now. And this is something that we should shoot for as Christians to be, to seek exaltation, which is a way of saying lift it up. This is a motivation that Peter gives us that's right, that we, we should want to be humble because we know that one day God will lift us up. We'll get to that a little bit more in the glory section. Let's keep reading. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What is a mark of humility in your life or in the church? Peter says it is confessing anxieties. As we read, if we were to read this backwards, it would say that if you were proud, you will not confess anxieties to God. That's what Peter is saying. The way the Christians humble themselves is by telling God about their troubles and asking for help. This is an invitation for us this morning. God desires right now for us to humble ourselves and ask him for help with various problems. It can be something really small. When you're trying to work on something and it doesn't make any sense, God, give me insight. Help me figure this out. Or when you have huge financial troubles, God, help me. I need your help. Marital issues. Jesus is standing, willing. Will they confess their anxieties? He wants to help you, even this morning. So that's the first sort of attitude, is this humbleness that pervades the person. But not only that, Peter gives a second, and it's sober-mindedness. So he'll say this in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The second attitude Peter gives us is to be sober-minded. 
Now, why would he give this command to churches in Asia Minor? The same reason he gives it to us. And there's a way of living that everyone can choose that says, I will pollute and dilute my thinking with all the things around me. And I'll just give you a a number of them here. Uh, I have a few that we see pop up in scripture. One would be in Luke 21, when Jesus is talking about the end times when he will return and what you have to do to be ready for that. And he says, but watch yourselves, Luke 21, 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. That's kind of going after everything. And drunkenness, alcohol, and the cares of this life. And that day, his returning, come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. The way that Jesus says we can be unprepared is by paying attention to things in the world. Some of that's drinking. Some of that's the cares of life, the anxieties, the stress that come upon us. But not only that, in Matthew 13, Jesus will talk about it this way. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns in that parable, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Alcohol, money, and a number of other things, even Netflix, social media, Facebook, they can have an effect on your mind and your body that makes your thinking skewed. You don't think about things rightly anymore. All you think about is your, your mind is preoccupied with drinking, with making more money, with watching the next show that comes up, with what people think about you or the way that other people's lives are on Facebook. There's, there's an aspect to the Christian life in your thinking that if you let it go wherever it will, you will be undisciplined and not sober. But Peter calls instead the Christian to have a sober mindset. They have to be humble and be sober-minded. Now, why is this sober-mindedness so important? Well, he, he says it here, that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you, as a Christian, are caught up spending all of your free time watching things on the internet or on your TV or fantasizing about how you can make more money, you will not see the lion coming that will destroy you and he'll wipe you out. Maybe your marriage, maybe your whole family, maybe your financial stability, But there is, as Peter says, for the believers, an adversary, the devil, out against you. And he thinks nonstop about how to bring you down. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the devil in the Screwtape Letters, he says it this way, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. As Lewis realized, one of the, the chief ways to fall in this area is to think, 
I don't even have an enemy. I'm not even in a war. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter what I spend my money on. It matters desperately. So Peter calls us to say, you need to have a sober mind. You're not in peacetime right now. You are in exile and a foreigner and there is an enemy and you have enemies against you all the time. So don't think that this is peacetime living. It's not. It's wartime living. And we need to have that attitude to some degree. Not to say that you can't enjoy things like drinks or Facebook or money, but they don't become the source of your attention. It's not what you think about all the time. The attitude of the church should be humility and sobriety because God exalts the humble and the devil seeks to devour the Christians everywhere. This is what Peter also says in the next verse, that you have to resist the devil. This is what he says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You as a Christian, in whatever suffering that you experience, do not suffer it alone. Whatever temptation you feel, last night or this morning, you don't suffer it alone. There are scores and scores of believers before and even now going through these things with you. And part of having a sober mindset is to say, I'm not a victim. God knows what I need. And this sort of pain is happening to people all over the world who know him. Have a sober mindset. So Peter says that we elders are called to do and be a certain way, but then also that in the church, the way that we interact with one another is to be with an attitude of humility and sobriety. Our sobriety affects how we care for and love one another. But not only that, Peter moves on in the last bit in verse 10 to say that we have to set our mind on the hope of Christ's return. Verse 10, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, which is remarkable. I mean, for us, I don't like suffering. I know I like, don't like suffering. But these Christians whom he is writing to were losing their homes, all their money. Their lives were extremely bleak. Abuse in some situations, death in a couple years. And he says, your suffering is just a little while. It doesn't feel that way. I know it doesn't for me, but we have to be careful not to put our feelings over what God says in his word. And compared to eternity, suffering is but a short time. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not only is suffering short, but Peter gives us at the end of the letter now a a nugget of wisdom, the, the gold in the letter. And you could say it this way, suffering now, glory later. He's been talking about it this whole time, but he brings it into clarity at the end. And I'll just run through with you real quick the way he talks about it in the letter. In 1 Peter 1.11, he says, inquiring, this is the prophet's, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted to them the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Not only that, in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad 
when his glory is be revealed. Again, suffering glory. And in 5.1 that we read, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And now, last in verse 10, he gives us the last point. After you have suffered a little while, that he who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We should not be surprised at suffering as Christians. We shouldn't. In fact, we should look at suffering in our life, however it happens, as a way of saying glory. All the suffering that you experience now is a way that God has designed to enhance your future delight in him. That seems weird. It seems really weird to say. It seems even weirder to think about hard. That the suffering that you experience leads to your glory as a Christian. How can this be the case? Throughout the Peter, not only is Throughout the letter, not only does Peter give us this image, but he also shows to us this is how it was with Jesus. Jesus didn't come and glory all over everything and go to heaven. He suffered. He suffered 30 or 33 years as a human being. Who knows what happened during that time? Not only that, abandoned by his closest friends in his darkest hour of need, Crucified on the cross, Jesus suffered, and his suffering led to glory. And so Peter's argument for us is that our suffering in God will also lead to glory. So hear that this morning. Whatever suffering you're going through, don't think it's pointless. For the believer, every bit of suffering is pointed. It's going somewhere. It's worth something, and it will result for you in glory as Peter says. Peter closes out with a ending of the letter in verses 12 to 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, that's either who he used to write the letter or delivered the letter to these churches, I have re- written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon greets you who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. A couple things to notice here at the end. There is kind of a weird mention of Babylon here. And for the original readers, it probably made a lot more sense. For us, less so. We just see Babylon and we think, oh, that's a song. I know. That's great. But Peter actually, he, he uses it very intentionally to say that there is this person, she who is in Babylon, who's likewise chosen, likewise chosen, greets you. Uh, this was a common way in the other epistles, if you read the New Testament, to say a church. So Peter is saying there's a church in Babylon, and they're chosen just like you were, and she sends you greetings. It's, it's a remarkable thing that Peter starts to do here, and uh, if I can just nerd out on you for a second, there's something called... Uh, in, in New Testament grammar, uh, literature, especially something called an inclusio. And that is where you begin uh, the beginning of a letter with one idea and then end it with a similar idea. And that's what 
Peter does here. He begins the letter in 1 Peter by talking about these elect exiles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in, and then he gives the regions that they live in. And then at the end of the letter, he says Babylon. The point here is that Peter is using elect exiles in Babylon to say the people of God. And not only that, but Babylon, he changes it a little bit to say that this, the people of God live in a place you couldn't imagine. Babylon in the Old Testament and even mentioned in the New Testament is the seat of evil. It's where, uh, as, as the Bible begins its first pages, that the evil person goes to start the city, Nimrod. He begins the city, builds it, and it grows and grows and grows. This is the evil city. You can't find anywhere else that's worst. In Revelation, Babylon is used to talk about the devil and where he lives. This is a bad place. But not only that, Peter says there is a church in the middle of Babylon. God's people, elect, chosen. And not only that, but by saying Babylon, he's also using the language of the Old Testament to say God's people, the Jews, who were thrown into exile, went into Babylon. And he commanded them, seek the good of the city. Do good. Dwell there. And so Peter, for us, has a message by Babylon to say, you, Christians, are a kind of people that are distinct and separate from all people on earth. You're part of a different kingdom. But God has you in the middle of a wicked age, a wicked city, a wicked nation. If God can sustain you there, it's true. And that's what Peter says as he writes, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This next kingdom that's coming when righteousness dwells and Jesus sits enthroned over everything is happening right now. You, as a believer, are part of this new community living in an old world. So Peter's encouragement to us is that it's true. All of it is true. If you're waiting for Jesus to return, he wants elders in the church to act a certain way. He wants everyone else in the church to be humble, including elders, humble and have a sober mindset. And not only that, but have a hope set on Jesus' return. And we breezed over it, but just let me go back to it, that he says he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is a job. The restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing. This is a job that Jesus leaves to no one else. It's him. And I think by that, we can easily say one day, yeah, we're looking forward to new heavens and new earth, new community where righteousness dwells, all evil is gone. But do you see that God is looking forward to a day when he individually with every one of you and with me, he will personally restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you and establish you. He doesn't leave that to anyone else. Elders, apostles, no. 
If you're wayward, he will guide you to the right path. If you're doubting, he will confirm you are his child. If you are weak, he will strengthen your heart. If you are falling away, he will establish your faith in him. God desperately wants you to know him and love him. And living in the midst of suffering in this world that is the old world for us as believers is something that we need to learn to suffer in well together, not just with other people, but together as a church to have these mindsets. Let's pray together.